Hello, thank you for joining me on the Good Land Project podcast. I'm Matthew Kaywood, and today I'm talking with William Dunbar about the Japanese concept of Sotoama, an old idea getting a new life. William is communications coordinator for the International Satoyama Initiative Project at the United Nations University Institute for the Advanced Study of Sustainability in Tokyo, Japan. He was born and raised in Cleveland, Ohio, and took a BA in Anthropology from the Colorado College and an MA in Asian Languages and Cultures from the University of California, Los Angeles. He has lived in and around Tokyo for more than 15 years, working in the academic, public and private sectors before joining the United Nations. His work with the Satoyama Initiative is mostly about resources management at the landscape level. William, thank you for joining me on the Good Land Project. Help me with my pronunciation. How do I say Satoyama? Okay, it, I, I say Satoyama. I, I hope it's close to what I'm saying. <laughs> I may not have the perfect uh, pronunciation, but it should be something along the lines of Satoyama. Satoyama appealed directly to the idealist agrarian in me the first time I encountered the term in Kyoto Journal a few years ago. And since then, the United Nations University has started the International Partnership for the Satoyama Initiative, and the concept has spread way beyond the shores of Japan. In doing so, Satoyama seems to have become many things. The Japanese term literally means the place between the mountains and arable land, but that definition has widened. Can you explain Satoyama's dual meaning as a place and an ideal? Uh, yes. Uh, so the, the idea of Satoyama, um, depending on who you ask, may or may not be a fairly ancient idea, but it came into sort of the modern literature around the 1960s. Um, and yeah, the, the basic idea is that, that Sato basically means village or sort of inhabited area, and Yama means mountain, literally, but in more generally sort of... Um, uninhabited, you know, wild, wilder areas. So the idea of a Satoyama, those two words sort of crammed together, um, is a place that's both an inhabited area and an uninhabited area sort of at the same time. So either the area is sort of between those, those two uh, extremes or, or sort of a, a, a place that, that mixes them completely. So... Um, if you if you think of a, probably if you've seen pictures of sort of the Japanese uh, rural landscape, uh, you've probably seen that it um, is often kind of a mosaic of land uses. Uh, you've got rice paddies, you've got different kinds of agricultural fields, all sort of crammed up uh, into a, a area with with uh, forests and more wild areas altogether. Um, and the idea being that that this sort of traditional Japanese landscape with a mosaic of, of land uses um, helps to provide ecosystem services, helps to provide pre-provisioning services um, to people, um, all in a way that's, that's harmonious with nature. Um, so a Satoyama area can be, a, as you say, a physical area um, that looks like that, or it's sort of this idea that's sort of, um, I don't know, integral to sort of the Japanese psyche and their idea of their country and their land, um, that, that this area is sort of a, a prototypical, good, harmonious with nature type of place that exists in, the, in, in, in Japan. Um, and notably, I think we'll get into this later, but uh, that the, the idea in, more recently that that's been expanded beyond Japan. And there's a coastal version as well, isn't there? 
Yes. So the um, to give you more more uh, more foreign terminology, there's a word called sato umi. Uh, umi means ocean. So you've got again the same thing: sato and umi, inhabited area with with sea or ocean. Um, and uh, th this is the same sort of area where uh, long-term interactions between uh, humans and and the, in this case the marine environment um, have provided benefits both for uh, for maintenance of of the marine environment and also for uh, provisioning services for humans. I'm pretty sure it was on the Satoyama Initiative website where I saw an example of that a fisherman who annually goes up to help people take care of the forest because he regards the forests and, and Japanese fishermen traditionally have regarded the forest as being integral to the health of their fisheries. Yes, uh, that, that's actually a very good example. Um, I don't have his name right in front of me. I want to say it's Hatakeyama, but if I got that wrong, I'm sorry, and <laughs> we can check it out later maybe. Um, but he, he's a really important figure sort of um, in, in uh, somewhere up in northern Japan. Um, and he's working with the idea that, that uh, we, we say Satoyama and Satoumi, so the, the uh, traditional Satoyama area and then the ocean version. But he's very instrumental in, um, in sort of demonstrating how those two things are. They're not necessarily separate. Um, he's working, I think, mostly with, uh, with oyster fisheries. Oysters grow in the ocean, obviously. And they need really clean water coming down from the land. And he has, has had this, this long, long project um, working with the people upland uh, to get the sort of sustainably managed forests in this Satoyama model, which um, forests and, and farmland and, and water, um, places where uh, water runoff comes from uh, flowing down into the ocean where the oysters are grown. And it's had mutual benefits both for the people upstream communities in terms of cleaner water for them and that has led to uh, cleaner water for the oysters which uh, leads to um, improved um, economic benefits for the area as a whole. And there's I think uh, as I recall there's even greater imperative for that connection because uh, he was in the tsunami zone and had was completely wiped out by the tsunami so He's um, trying to rebuild his and other fisheries, and uh, this connection is all important to that reconstruction. Yeah, there's actually quite a bit. Um, since, since the tsunami sort of, uh, you know, it was a big tragedy. Obviously, it, it wiped out a lot of um, of communities up in, in towards northern Japan. Um, and but finding a silver lining in that, um, one, one thing that some people have been looking at is trying to um, apply this this idea of Satoyama and Satoumi. Um, in those areas to rebuild them sort of, um, you know, in a more sustainable, cleaner, better way, <laughs> uh, if it's okay to say that, um, than they were before, um, and, and, and make sure that, that um, they, they provide good ecosystem services for people. Um, and also the idea that, uh, that the sort of traditional Satoyama and Satoumi um, model uh, leads to greater resilience uh, for the communities so that um, if there is, God forbid, a, uh, another tragedy in the future, that the communities will, will turn out to be more resilient um, or as resilient as possible. Because it deals with smallholders and, or it tends to deal with smallholders, and it deals with a 
traditional way of, of doing things, it could be easy to dis- dismiss Satoyama as utopian or archaic. The global policy push is all about feeding the world and um, efficiency. You've, you've probably answered this to some degree, but how does Satoyama fit into the modern world, not just in Japan, but elsewhere? Yeah, um, and, and that's a good point, and I think that's, a, that's an important point um, to address um, in that, uh, yeah, the, the first, at first blush, you would look at Satoyama and think, oh, this is just, um, this is trying to go back to, to the past sort of uh, mindset. Um, and maybe at, at, towards the beginning of, of when the Satoyama concept started to become popular, that, that, that um, there may have been some truth in that. But this, as, as the concept developed um, and turned into some, the, the Satoyama initiative, um, I think uh, well, a major part of that is, is re- recognizing that it's, it, the idea is not to look to the past and just try to recreate the past, but to use the good aspects of the Satoyama model um, in a way that um, looks towards the future and can provide people with a satisfying uh, modern life, uh, not, not just a, a past life. One, one way of looking at that is um, looking at the effects of moving away from a Satoyama, Satoyama lifestyle. Could I ask you to read a few paragraphs from the, U, the United Nations University website, which describes that what happens when that, uh, societies do move away from that, that lifestyle? Yeah. Um, okay. Here we go. Landscape transformation often mirrors socioeconomic changes. Questions of transformation and transition frequently weave through Satoyama discussions. How have Satoyama landscapes been altered as Japan has gone from an agrarian society sustained by locally managed and produced bioresources to an industrial urban society dependent on imported fossil fuels and associated products? According to leading Satoyama landscape ecologists Kazuhiko Takeuchi, Izumi Washitani, and colleagues who introduced Satoyama to in- English literature, the fuel and fertilizer revolutions of the 1960s led to two distinctive patterns of degradation. Satoyama landscapes disappeared as urban sprawl and large-scale development changed their traditional rural landscapes. Conversely, in rural areas far from expanding cities, depopulation coupled with aging of the residents has resulted in the abandonment of secondary woodland and farmland and the ensuing underuse of bioresources. So that describes the movement away from Satoyama. Uh, mm-hmm. Is there evidence that you can move back towards that that way of doing things? Um, well, I, I think there is um, part, partly in the example that we mentioned earlier um, with disaster risk resu- reduction um, post tsunami, um, and also the, it's hard to, to point to, to hard evidence, but th- there is a big movement, at least in Japan, and I think in a, in a lot of other places. Um, towards sort of um, people shifting their, their, their consuming habits towards products that have been uh, produced in a, in a sustainable manner um, that aren't, I guess, the, the product necessarily of sort of large-scale industrialized um, monocultural-based um, agricultural practices, but um, products that, that have been um, produced in 
in areas that might be considered similar to Satoyama. Um, and, and more of these sort of uh, agricultural areas like that that are springing up um, in near cities, in peri-urban areas, surprisingly close, close to Tokyo often. Um, you know, the, the future, it remains to be seen whether that, that can, how far that can go. I, I don't, Satoyama and similar ideas can't probably replace all of the food production um, in, the, in the modern world because the, the intensive uh, practices do, do produce a, a higher output in some cases. But the Satoyama ones can maybe, or Satoyama similar, Satoyama-like um, practices can, can hopefully uh, produce a more sustainable and more uh, healthier um, kind of agricultural output. We've been talking about um, Satoyama as an agrarian initiative, but it's also being upheld as a nature conservation movement. And the uh, Satoyama initiative talks about resolving the underuse of biological resources. This is contrary to the usual perception of nature conservation, isn't it? Because usually nature conservation attempts to limit the appropriation of resources by humans. Satoyama is talking about a different thing. Yeah, um, that's exactly right. Uh, the... Um... I think, and and it, it's not the only the only movement in the world doing that right now. I, I feel like um, I, I attended the uh, the World Parks Congress in Australia last year, and I was surprised by how many people there were talking, were sort of recognizing that um, this sort of traditional model where where you set aside protected areas as uh, almost no no use zones um, has has not necessarily um, resulted in in the the kind of benefits to biodiversity and, and nature that had been hoped for um, and that that landscapes and areas that where people are heavily involved can actually do more for nature conservation especially if the people if people feel like they're stakeholders in their own areas um, uh, so it, it's a I don't know if it's opposed to the uh, the traditional idea that that nature needs to be protected and and left to its own, but um, it, it's complementary to that idea, um, the idea that that human stewardship um, can can uh, conserve nature as well as um, just producing, uh, creating areas where humans are not allowed to touch nature and natural resources at all. You spoke earlier of the of the example. Of, of the link between forests and sea. Can you give an example of um, an agrarian community in Japan or outside Japan that is is producing food and preserving natural resources at the same time? Continuing with the idea of protected areas, uh, there's an interesting uh, case that was presented at the last um, international partnership for the Satoyama Initiative Global Conference um, and it should be one of the websites on the uh, one of the case studies on the website. Also, um, there's a, a natural a national park or some sort of protected area. I think at the at the national level in Malaysia, um, where they had they had done what what has been done in the past. You know, they they, they selected an area, um, sort of walled it off or didn't wall it off, but um, designated as a as a protected area. Um, and said that the local people and the people in general were not allowed to use any of the resources at all. Um, and what happened was 
you had this big area with a lot of people around it who felt like they, they should be able to use their natural resources. So there was a big problem with poaching. Um, people would go in and just ignore the, the productive area law and, uh, and, uh, and take natural resources sort of as they saw fit. Um, so the solution that the government came up with was to create what they called community use zones um, within the park. So there's, there's communities at the edge of the park were sort of designated a, a part of the area within the park that was sort of their area where they were allowed to um, maintain sustainable, you know, sustainable um, natural resource use practices, go into the, the park and, and get, uh, I don't know what exactly what, but food from the forest and, and fishing and things like that. Um, and since it was their own area, they ha had a stake in making sure that that was sustainable for their own benefit. Um, so it, it was sort of a, a mixture of, of a traditional uh, protected areas manage, uh, protected areas model and um, people in their own landscape um, taking care of their own natural resources. I think in in the Western world, um, the Nature Conservancy is trying to, to do similar things along similar lines, integrating human stewardship and um, and natural resource preservation and there are a lot of actually there are a lot of initiatives around that are doing that very successfully what is the international partnership for the Satoyama initiative and what does it hope to achieve so I think we talked a little bit about um, the Satoyama initiative or the, the idea of Satoyama and how it came about um, earlier starting in the 1960s um, following on that that idea there was a lot of, um, of research done um, in Japan uh, starting in the 2000, or maybe the 1990s to 2000s, to, to actually sort of nail down exactly what Satoyama is, how it works, what sort of benefits it has, etc. And there was a big uh, Japan Satoyama Satoumi assessment. Um, and as a result of that, um, in 2010, at the, uh, the big conference of the parties for the Convention to, on Biological Diversity, which was held in Nagoya, Japan that year, um, one of the proposals was to create something called the Satoyama Initiative. And this was a, a global initiative. Not, this is not just Japan, but it, it's got the Japanese name, Satoyama Initiative. But it's uh, for this sort of, this sort of um, issues that we've been talking about, Satoyama-like issues at a global scale. The same idea that, that um, people and nature can, society and nature can live in harmony um, in these, these landscapes uh, managed by people by the people who live in the landscapes. Um, and as part of that, the Satoyama initiative, this global initiative, uh, as the sort of institutional part of arm of that in, uh, initiative, something called the International Partnership for the Satoyama Initiative was created. Um, and it was uh, started by the, the Ministry of the Environment of Japan and the United Nations University. Um, and it, it started with around 50 members. Uh, since 2010, it's grown to 167 is the latest figure. Um, and it's a partnership of many different kinds of organizations, uh, ranging from national governments to local governments, uh, NGOs and NPOs, um, civil society organizations, academic and research institutes, um, indigenous groups, um, and, and others. Um, and it, it, it's a partnership that the membership in the partnership means that um, 
it's an organization that's that's at least agrees with the sort of the idea of Satoyama initiative and wants to promote that. So it's to get these organizations together, uh, working together, collaborating, sharing knowledge, um, and etc. Um, in order to to promote these this sort of sustainable landscape management um, all around the world. Is that membership primarily concerned with conservation, as in conservation of existing traditional farming cultures or agrarian cultures, or is it proactively trying to develop new ways of, of doing things as well? Um, it's a big mix, I'd say. Um, uh, there, there's a, Again, the, the whole idea behind the Satayama Initiative is not is that um, conservation and development uh, don't have to be seen as as against each other. Um, that they, they finding ways for those to work together. Um, so it's it's a mix between people who are, I guess, more um, concerned with conservation specifically, um, and then others who are may, maybe they're they're based in a local community somewhere or an area of their local government or something, and, and they're interested in the, the development of their area um, and finding sustainable ways to do that. And the, I guess the whole point of the, the partnership is to show that those are not in opposition to each other. Obviously, Japan is a very highly developed country, but I'm thinking uh, membership in other developed countries like the US or Australia or parts of Europe where I think um, Satyama would be a certainly be a natural fit with a lot of the European farming cultures. But I'm thinking, I guess I'm thinking more of the United States, Australia, the, the, the countries which have had always had a bigger agricultural tradition or a broader agricultural tradition. Yeah, as you say, uh, a lot of countries in Europe and people, uh, organizations working in Europe are, are very supportive of Satyama ideas. Um, and <laughs> you may not be surprised that that, uh, that sort of one of the hardest places to get a lot of membership and a lot of interest is exactly in the United States and Australia and maybe a few other countries. Um, the the United States is actually not a party to the Convention on Biological Diversity, and a lot of the Satoyama Initiative processes, um, sort of at the at the process level, has gone through the the Convention on Biological Diversity. So it's been hard to get a lot of um, interest in the United States. Uh, unfortunately, we'd, we'd love to change that, of course. But it, it, and it's it, it's difficult to to find out how it would work because there isn't such a, a tradition in in the United States, and I think also in Australia of any other agricultural model other than the sort of large scale industrialized one. There are a few. Uh, the the Hawaii Department of Agriculture, for one, um, is a is a member, and I'm trying to think of Australia. There's I think there's one or two, but it, it's it's a pretty small membership. We're very open to to gaining more uh, applications from the, those parts of the world. Yeah, so it, it would seem it is a natural fit with what's happening in that um, one sector of food production is going smaller, more product focus, mm -hmm. has to tell an ethical story about its engage, engagement with the land. So presumably there's scope there, but it's just who picks that up um, and runs with it because... My next question was, the Satoyama Initiative, the materials seem to be written for very much for policy and academia. There are a lot of acronyms <laughs> in there. Um, so it's it's a high-level discussion. I'm, I'm wondering how well that's been translated to on-ground initiatives at this stage. 
Yeah. Um, yeah, you're right that, that it is probably most, a lot of the work has been policy and, and academic uh, oriented. And I guess that's just a, a function of how you know, who's involved and, <laughs> and who's most active. It's hard for, for very small sort of community based organizations often to have the sort of capacity to contribute in the same way. Um, and that's something that sort of partnership ho hopefully will help to bridge that gap. But there are a lot of if you look at the case studies on the website, um, there are a lot of very much smaller scale projects going on. I guess at, at the global partnership level, I guess more of our work is more involved with sort of coordinating those projects. So we, a member of the, the international partnership is more likely to be sort of an umbrella group that looks over a lot of those different projects on the ground. Uh, one example would be even within the partnership, there have been a, some funding mechanisms created. One, one, for example, is called COMDEX. That's another acronym for you. And it's, it's administered by UNDP, which is an IPSI a international partnership member. And so UNDP, obviously, is a huge organ, international organization, but it's their small grants program. And the people at UNDP are the ones who go around on the ground and, and identify projects for funding. And these are local scale landscape level projects. At the scale of an international partnership, it tends to be more policy and maybe academic uh, related work. But one of the major points is to find a way to um, have that filter down all the way to the ground level. So let's say let's say there's a shire or a, a region in Australia where there's a lot of small scale farming springing up, a lot of uh, natural resources. If that council, local council, is interested in engaging with the Satorama initiative and um, using it as some sort of promotional tool or coordination tool for what's going on in that mm. district, what happens? What's the process? Um, well, hopefully they would, if they, they hear of our work uh, through this podcast or somewhere else, um, they're absolutely welcome to, to look at the website to see if, if it looks like something they're interested in doing. Um, and then just contact us about applying if they want to join the, the partnership. And it's that simple. Once they contact us, we'll, we'll be in contact about application, how they, what they need to do. There, there's no, for the international partnership, for the Satoyama Initiative, there's no real uh, obligation. It's not like uh, if the Shire signed up that they would suddenly be subject to a lot of regulations on sort of the international level. They're still free to do what they do, do what they want to do as long as they're sort of in line with, with principles of Satoyama Initiative. Um, and the benefits are basically that they, they get to they get access to the network. They get to see people who are doing similar things around the world. They get to go to conferences and, and meet up with, with people, hopefully find avenues for collaborative work and be part of a sort of a community of, of like-minded people. It's an attractive proposition, I imagine, for those regions that are looking to uh, increase their farming density. It's got a lot of attributes, increasing increasing the number of people, increasing the diversity of output and um, bettering the use of, or not the use of, the stewardship of natural resources. So what's next for the Satoyama Initiative? Well, in terms of events, we have uh, our next major global conference will be next year, uh, hopefully in March. Whereabouts? I think I can say, because it's been announced, that, that we're hoping to hold it in Cambodia. The last one was back-to-back uh, was -back with the, the Convention on Biological Diversity Conference of the Parties in Korea. We're still continuing to grow our men membership. We're getting membership, um, new member applications all the time um, and trying to expand our reach into areas that, have, that are not 
represented as heavily. Um, it's not surprising probably that, that a lot of the membership is in Asia. It is global and it's not, it's not overwhelmingly Asian, but it's a, a little Asia heavy. And we, we love to, to expand our membership into um, areas like Latin America and uh, Oceania, um, Africa, et cetera. We're continuing to do different kinds of expert workshops. Um, we collect case studies of Satoyama and Satoyama-like projects happening around the world. We put them on our website, and then we often we sometimes have uh, workshops where the writers of the case studies will, will come together. Um, and then discuss their case studies and, and produce publications. We should have a publication about our case studies coming out later this year. And we're continuing um, to, to be involved with uh, processes at the international level, um, taking part in conferences, um, uh, talking to, to policymakers from around the world. And, and hopefully the movement will continue to, to grow and snowball and get more attention um, all around the world and someday reach our vision of society in harmony with nature. Uh, it's a wonderful ideal in a world that's heading determinedly in the other direction at the moment. Indeed, yeah. So I hope uh, you're very successful. William, thank you very much for spending time with me. All right. Well, thanks for, for taking the time and having me on.